Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I want to read from verses 1 through 21. 1 through 21. It's what I call a, a black, a red, and a white chapter. But embedded in this chapter is the very first promise of the grace of salvation. So that's why the conference begins here. Let's hear the Word of God. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Thus far the reading of God's precious word. So I want to focus with you in this address, just on verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, 
and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The theme tonight, with God's help, will be the first promise of grace. I'm going to look at it with you in three thoughts. Enmity announced by God. Conflict waged by Satan. Victory assured in Christ. Enmity announced by God. Conflict waged by Satan. Victory assured in Christ. Genesis 3 has been rightly called the black chapter of the Bible. Our fall in Adam is certainly the blackest reality of human history. Genesis 3 tells us sad truth about ourselves, each and every one of us. And any attempt to exclude ourselves from Genesis 3 is certainly futile. Through the fall of Adam, as representative head in the covenant of works over all mankind, we have all become children of the devil and servants of sin by nature. Adam's sin is imputed to us in its guilt, and the pollution of it is passed on to us from our parents. We have subjected ourselves to the sentence of death. We have subjected ourselves to the infinite wrath of God. We have subjected ourselves to the curse of the law. We have given ourselves to the dominion of Satan in this tragic fall. And experientially, in the depths of our soul, we've got to become Adam, as it were, standing naked before God. This fall is our fall, our guilt, our pollution. And so Genesis 3 unlocks for us the secrets of numerous tragic truths. How did we break God's covenant? How did we scorn His majesty? How did we trample His law underfoot? How did we challenge His very attributes? It's through this fall that we turned our backs on our worthy Creator. It's through this fall that we cast away His image, that we exchanged ignorance for knowledge, unrighteousness for righteousness, perversity for holiness. Genesis 3 informs, of these, informs us of these grand, powerful, humbling, sad, tragic truths. Simply, he did eat. Tragically, they were both naked. Graphically and movingly. It's a powerful story. It unveils how we have become what we are by nature. Lost, condemnable, rejectable sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, hell-worthy, fit to be vessels of sovereign and just reprobation. I had a lady come to me not so long ago who said to me, she remembered 50-some years ago being in Kalamazoo, Michigan in a, in a youth group with me, and she said to the youth group, she said, I have a lot of trouble. Can you help me? I have a lot of trouble believing that there can be such a thing as reprobation. I don't remember the conversation at all, but she said, you look back at me and you said to me, isn't that amazing? Because the thing I can hardly comprehend is that there should be such a thing as election. 
That's the wonder. Why would God elect anyone? We all deserve to be reprobates. We are all sinners. No one ever had to teach us how to break any one of the Ten Commandments. You parents, you never have to teach one of your children how to break any of the Ten Commandments. This is our nature. We are sinners. We are born and conceived in sin, fit to be vessels of destruction. And so total depravity, that is to say, every part of us being evil, unacceptable with God, separation from God, slavery to Satan, the origin of sin and evil, the cause of all misery and death, the stain upon all creation, it's all here in Genesis 3. A dark chapter indeed. Its blackness is beyond human expression. Who can comprehend? Who can comprehend the depth of our fall? Who can comprehend the the depth of our natural heart's affinity with sin? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? We can only scratch the surface. In fact, by nature, we don't truly know ourselves. Daily, we live out our fall unaware of it in our actions in our thoughts, in our words, in our motives, in our perceptions. We're, we're blind to our own blindness. Reverend Ledebour, a 19th century Dutch minister, says in his little question book that many of us memorized when we were kids, what is our greatest misery? Our greatest misery is that we know not our misery. Remember that question, some of you? You see, we're such slaves of Satan that this enslaver's hold over us passes by us largely unnoticed. In fact, we actually think we're, we're better than other people. And we think we're not too bad. And we justify ourselves. We say in our minds, I believe in total depravity. But when someone accuses us of anything, we're, we're ready to fight for ourselves as if we were perfect. Grace, however... The promise of grace, the application of grace, the fullness of grace changes radically, wonderfully, all this. And grace comes into our lives, sin becomes sin. As the Puritans called it, the sinfulness of sin becomes reality so that the smallest sin becomes greater to us than the most evil affliction. Smallest sin becomes greater to us when we're graced by God than the greatest affliction. And then you see the burden of our original sin becomes ten times greater experientially even than the burden of our actual sins. Because our problem of original sin means that I can never love God above all. I can never love my neighbors myself. So I am never not sinning. Every tick of the clock, tick of the clock, tick, tick, sin, 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 sin. I'm never obeying God in the core of my being. And when the Holy Spirit teaches me that, you see, then I understand no amount of reformation can clean me up. I need to be regenerated. I need grace because I've falsified the very purpose for which I've been put on this earth to glorify God. I'm missing the target altogether of why God made me. I need to be born again. And you see, when that becomes real then we know what it means to cry out with Paul. I know that in me and my flesh dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Happily, however, Genesis 3 also speaks 
about this grace of self-awareness, this grace of self-abasement, as well as the grace of divine intervention and provision. That's why Genesis 3 has also been called by the Puritans the red chapter of Scripture. And that for three reasons. First, on its page, the Father's first gospel promise of His coming blood-shedding Son is unfurled in verse 15, the so-called Protoevangelium, or often called in the Dutch tradition, the Mother's Promise. And second, on its page, Genesis 3, is the first exercise of faith in the Father's advent promise of life. And it's expressed by Adam when he turns after a list of curses God gives out, he turns to his wife's his wife Eve, and says, your name is Eve, which means life, living, showing that he actually believed the first gospel promise pronounced. And third, on its page is the first sacrificial blood shed pointing to the gospel when God slew animals to make Adam and Eve coats of skins. Verse 21, to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them, pointing to the blood shedding of the Messiah to come. So against the black backdrop of Genesis 3's tragedy, God paints a red chapter of atonement and a white chapter of hope. A white chapter of hope. Genesis 3 preaches that God is always ahead of Satan. It preaches amazing, staggering grace to lost sinners. Grace that was not ever made available to fallen angels but is to fallen man out of the sovereignty of God's abounding mercy. And so this first promise in verse 15 is a remarkable promise, a remarkable doorway to the grace of salvation. And amazingly, this promise begins in in the Hebrew with the word Enmity. Remarkable word. Enmity will I put. Think about that. Scripture's first gospel promise begins with the word enmity. Now that's astonishing. For lost, fallen sinners, deliverance and enmity are inseparable. Many people don't believe that. Many people reject that. Many people say, well, I thought the gospel is just all about love. And many people don't understand what I'm saying right now. They ask, why why would God ever begin with enmity? Wasn't enmity already all too present in the fall in Genesis 3? Didn't Satan show enmity when he tempted Eve? Didn't Eve show enmity when she gave fruit to Adam? Didn't Adam show enmity when he ate forbidden fruit and then blamed God and then blamed Eve for his sin? Why would God bring more enmity into a world which only moments prior knew nothing of enmity? It doesn't make sense. And we respond to that. Enmity itself is not the problem in paradise. Adam and Eve should have been at holy enmity with a serpent. They should have been full of holy hatred towards the serpent for even suggesting the possibility of eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. Enmity is not the problem. Adam and Eve knew that such eating entailed challenging God's authority, calling God a liar, breaking God's covenant, and breaking fellowship with Him. What a tragedy. But they went ahead and ate anyway. 
The problem of Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve is that they had a misdirected, a misdirected enmity. They directed their enmity against God instead of against Satan. And so mercifully, the Lord comes to intervene in the paradise scene to redirect their enmity to its proper focus, namely to hate sin and to hate Satan. The Lord said, as it were, enmity will I place between the serpent and his seed, that is Satan and unbelievers, and the woman and her seed, that is representing the elect church of all ages in Jesus Christ, I will reverse, God is saying, I will reverse your newly acquired values. I will cause you to hate what you now love, to love what you now despise. I will plant new enmity, an enmity that genuinely hates sin, for I will give you a new heart. That's really what God is doing here in this promise. So God's surprising intervention in paradise was not a request to the free will of men. It was a declaration. It was a pronouncement. It was an act of Almighty God in His irresistible free grace. Enmity will, I put. God's not standing by with his hands behind his back and saying, Adam, if you repent, I will, I will come and save you. God is saying, I'm breaking up this newfound covenant between you and your wife and Satan, and I'm going to put enmity between you, Adam and Eve, and Satan in his seed. So God did not stir up enmity already present. He did not request Adam and Eve to put enmity into exercise. In fact, he was not even addressing himself directly to them. He was actually addressing himself to the serpent. So what does is, what is all of this underscore for us tonight? We are not able to put enmity against sin in our own heart. Only God can make us haters of sin. Only God can teach us to see the sinfulness of sin. Only God can put in our heart enmity against sin. But the beauty of this first promise is that God has taken the initiative to do exactly that. And brothers and sisters, I submit to you tonight that this is our only hope. And this is our more than sufficient hope, that God brings enmity into our lives against sin and Satan and our old nature through divine initiative, through sovereign intervention, through amazing promises of grace, of which this is the first of thousands, thousands of such promises in the Bible. So God takes salvation into his own hands, and he allows for no uncertainty. He says, I will put enmity. Hence the new birth, you see, always does and always must bring new enmity. God planted enmity. Enmity against sin. Enmity against that old man nature. Enmity against Satan. Enmity against the pride of life. Enmity against the lusts of the flesh and the eye. Against anything that dishonors the Lord. And so my question to me and to you tonight is, are, are you experientially acquainted with this sovereign grace penetrating your life? Enmity will I put and dear believer, you know that you not only could not, but also would not have placed enmity in your own heart against sin, in your own strength. You just simply couldn't do it, and you wouldn't do it. And therefore, sovereign grace resonates 
inside of you so much because you know that's your only hope. That grace which does all for a sinner who can do nothing rightly. That grace which turns around those who are rushing to hell and plants their footsteps in the narrow pathway to heaven. But that is worked out in our lives through what the Puritans called, in the words of one of Bunyan's two greatest classics, the holy war. Which leads me to my second thought, conflict waged by Satan. Conflict waged by Satan. You see, the fruit of divine planting of enmity will always be conflict. Spiritual life is a struggling, bruising battle. It's holy warfare. It, this is our text, it, that is the seed of the woman, the Advent Messiah, shall bruise thy, that is the serpent, Satan's, head. And thou, Satan, shalt bruise his, Jesus Christ's, heel. You see, the Lord never promised his son or his people an easy way of life, an easy way of salvation. He promises us a blessed life. But it raises the question, how can the enmity he placed between the devil's seed and the woman's seed, between Satan and Christ, between the world and the church, between the wicked and the righteous, between the flesh and the spirit, not lead to conflict? See, where God builds his church, as the old divines used to say, on the foundation of the proclamation of his son, Satan will build his temple next door. Satan will wage war against all that is of God and of Christ. You see, he can't get at Christ anymore. Christ is exalted at the Father's right hand. Christ is God. Satan's only an angel. Thank God that Christ is much mightier than Satan. So what does Satan do? He attacks the crown of God's creation. And he particularly wants, in our day and age, the people of God. So every one of you who are a true believer, you are a target of Satan. Simon, Simon, Satan is desiring to have you, to sift you as wheat. Yes, in a special way, that means Satan is after those who have much influence in the church, the apostles and ministers, for example, today, or office bearers. But don't kid yourself. Satan hates you if the image of God is stamped upon you. And to get at Jesus, he will do anything to destroy you. So even though he is not God, at the same time, we should not minimize the power of Satan. It's more powerful than we are by nature, certainly. He never stops bruising the heels of the church of God. And though he will not conquer the living church, though he's a defeated foe already in principle, he knows that a church without heels, if I can use that expression, will be handicapped and severely weakened in battle. And Satan can get you to fall by biting your heels, you see. As J.C. Philpot once said, he will never keep a child of God out of heaven, but he is able to keep heaven out of a child of God at times. He can leave you feeling defeated. He can leave you feeling backslidden and on the verge of collapse so that you're not fruitful, not a bright light set on the hill. Satan is a fallen angel. His powers supersede our human ones. He is mighty. Thank God he's not almighty. But under the permissiveness of the divine decree, he will bruise, God says, the heel of the woman's seed. This is just a prediction of the spiritual conflict between the godly and the ungodly of all ages. It's Cain versus Abel. It's Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Egypt versus Israel. Satan's goal is always the same. Wipe out the chosen seed. Wipe out the chosen seed. 
So witness the command of Pharaoh to destroy all Israel's male children. Witness Egypt's attack at the Red Sea. Witness the plot of Haman. And above all, witness Satan's ferocious attacks on our precious Lord and Savior. So go with me to the desert of Judea. There we meet Jesus Christ, who had stepped away from the water of baptism, straight into the fire of temptation. For 40 days, Satan attacked him fiercely. He raged to bruise the heels of Christ, to get the advent promised seed to fall. Every avenue of attack was attempted to get Christ's sacred humanity under satanic control. But all in vain, for our Lord is almighty over Satan. But then in Gethsemane, all the powers of hell were unleashed, weren't they? Crawling as a worm and no man. He was sweating blood. And the profound cry, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Received no answer. It could not pass. He had to drink it to its bottom bitter dregs. Oh, what soul bruisings Christ experienced at the hands of Satan in that garden. No wonder he spoke to the satanic forces when they came to arrest him. This is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. Jesus knew that. And yet he went on in obedience to his father. He knew that all history had been moving toward this hour of his arrest and crucifixion. He knew that God had been at work during all the previous centuries from the creation of the world and the fall of man down to this very night, 2,000 years ago, with this hour, this hour ever before him. God willed it. God planned it. God worked it all out. Unthinkable. It pleased God to bruise his own son, Isaiah says. The incarnate son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of man, is publicly arrested and taken. And he used, God uses Satan in this astonishing, amazing, gracious, divine plan of salvation. And no one can thwart it. No one can tamper with God's plan. Not Judas, not Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, much less the fearful disciples. God decreed the rise and fall of nations and empires for this end. God decreed that the high priest and his cohorts would conspire to kill Jesus. That Judas should betray him into their hands. That wicked King Herod who beheaded John the Baptist and weak-willed Pontius Pilate should fall in with those plans. And Jesus knew it all ahead of time. Knowing all things that should come upon him, he went forth. Yes, truly, Satan's hour had arrived. But the beauty of this first promise of the gospel is that it hints at this that Satan's hour in paradise, which he got Adam and Eve to fall, is actually God's hour, Jesus' hour, the seed, singular, the promised Messiah, would gain the victory, you see. Ultimately, also in the garden, Satan's hour is Jesus' hour. And it apexes on the cross, In dying, Hebrews 2.14 tells us, he would destroy him who had the power of death, even the devil. And so in his triumph over death, he would make the destruction of death in absolute certainty. And Jesus knew that too. He knew that Satan's hour was really ultimately his hour. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't afraid because his father the God of providence with his hand of almighty and everywhere present power was in absolute control. Judas, Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the Jerusalem multitude are all so in his hand, 
so in the hand of the seed that they could not so much as move without his will. And what a comfort that is in our lives as believers still today. That God is in control of your life, every detail of your life. That nothing happens because of chance. That all things shall work together for good to those that love God. Means that when your worst fears are realized, it isn't. It isn't that the Son of God has stepped away from the throne of the universe. It isn't that He's abdicated responsibility for what is happening. It isn't that He's abandoning you to the evil and the satanic forces of this world. But it is that He is operating even then in every detail in the affairs of your life, numbering every hair of your head, confirming his own promise that what I do now thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. As William Cooper put it, blind unbelief is sure to err and scorn his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. Yes, the conflict raged at Gabbatha, at Gethsemane, and what a, what a conflict it was. Gabbatha, the crown of thorns, the scourging, <coughs> the mockery, the slappings, the internal war, the bloody bruisings, the scourging, the blood everywhere, head, back, but inside, most of all. And then Golgotha, the apex of Genesis 3.15, the unfathomable cry, the cry of dereliction, ringing through the darkened realm of nature, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Can you understand it? The momentousness, the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of the promises of grace, of salvation are immeasurable. God, forsaken of God, to save you? Martin Luther once got down on his knees at nine o'clock in the morning and got up at noon and for three hours wrestled to understand Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when he got up from his knees, he just cried out, God forsaken of God, who can understand it? This is the conflict of all ages. Satan defeated once and for all on the cross through Christ who destroyed him. As Satan was biting the heels of Christ, seeking to get him to fall, at the very moment Hebrews 2.14 says, Christ's heels are coming down on the head of Satan, destroying his head. The victory belongs to Christ. The darkest hour of the universe, Satan's hour, is actually the bright hour of Christ's victory. But the victory always comes through a bruising, suffering way. It always comes despite the heel-biting attacks of Satan. And that wasn't true only in the Old Testament times. Witness the Acts of the Apostles. Witness the early church's persecutions. Witness the Reformation. <laughs> and post-Reformation era. Witness the Great Awakening. Witness every time of revival. The church's most blessed times have always been times of most severe conflict. Tertullian rightly compared the church to a mowed field. He said, the more frequently it is cut, the more it grows. All of church history, biblical history, 
confirms the adage, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. And that conflict, if you're a believer, you know as well. You know that holy war inside of you. Oh, what battles there can be between the old nature and the new man, between your flesh and your spirit, between nature and grace. Like Rebecca, you often feel two seeds are within you, struggling to break forth, causing you to cry out, why am I thus? And the severity of those struggles, well, it's like Kelvin said of the Lord's Supper, can better be felt than tout, can better be experienced than expressed. Oh, what struggles, what struggles a believer can have with the triple-headed enemy, Satan, the world, and my own old nature. What doubts, what questions, what unanswered riddles, what unfulfilled promises, what satanic bruisings. No wonder, no wonder a child of God sometimes becomes a mystery to himself or herself in the midst of the holy war. By nature, we don't fight this holy war, do we? We're largely living struggle-free. We don't know holy battle. But when Satan has us as as his target, we we will know holy warfare. He'll become our arch enemy. Where God becomes real, Satan becomes real. He'll be that constant bruiser who seeks to avenge day and night, the avenger of the brethren. And you know what it's like. He comes to you and he, <coughs> he stimulates or tries to stimulate blasphemous thoughts into your mind. And then what does he do? He insinuates you can't be a child of God and have such thoughts. How can you be a believer when you struggle with the truth of God's promises and with the mercy of that God who's never treated you ill? And he argues with you that no child of God could be like you, so weak in faith, so corrupt, such a poor example. So hard and prayerless, so foolish and vain. So he comes as accuser on the left hand. He comes as an angel of light on the right hand, seeking to lead you to despair or seeking to lead you to presumption. And then he presents the world to you in fair colors as he presented the fruit to Eve, attempting to move you back into the customs, the friendships, the vanities of the world, inch by inch. And then he presses you to indulge just a moment, just briefly, in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you do stumble, ever so briefly, he's right there to say, you see, you can't be a believer. You can't be a child of God after all. Oh, the bruisings, the heel bitings of Satan to get you to fall. You know, you can't walk without heels. He wants to get you to fall. That renewed heart that will never fall utterly, thanks be to God. But he's determined to do it. And it's a struggle. The heavy burden of both hating sin and not being able to purge yourself from sin, that burden is what moved Paul to cry out in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the power of this death? And so you know what it's like as a bruised warrior to be fighting an endless battle. Repeatedly, you spend your strength in spiritual struggle only to discover that on account of yourself, you seem to be sliding down the perishing slope of sin. And if God prevent not, destruction. Your spiritual poverty, your weakness, seems to overcome you. The battle of the seed of the woman 
and the seed of the serpent, and the tempters following you, bruising you, running hard upon your heels. Sometimes you feel like David, anointed to be king, crowned to be king, and yet for 16 years, chased by Saul, hounded by Saul. 16 years. No wonder David said, I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. And maybe, you, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, I shall one day perish by the hand of Satan. He doesn't, doesn't let me go. He's bruising me constantly. And the hand of God seems hidden. And voices within me are urging me to abandon all pursuit of God and His grace. What's the use? I'm a hopeless case anyway. That's Satan, my friend. And he's a liar. He's a liar from the beginning. When your conscience condemns you, don't go away from God, but run to Him. Oh, the battle. Bitten by the seed of the serpent, by Satan, by the world, by your own sinful nature. You feel like you can hardly walk anymore, hardly stay upright. You're ready to fall. You feel polluted throughout. You fear you've chosen death above life, Satan above God. You feel like you've bitten yourself, as it were. And all your righteousnesses and your repentance and your prayer and your humility and your worthiness, even your unworthiness, it seems like death is written across everything you do and everything you say. And you're not the pure man or woman of God you want to be. What is God doing? Where is He? Well, He's emptying you of your own righteousness to make room in you for the woman's seed to come, to take up His abode by His Spirit and to fill you with Himself and with His victory. Because the victory is sure. The victory is sure. The seed of the woman, that's the promise of grace, shall prevail over the seed of the serpent. And it's when we surrender, as it were, to the seed of the woman saying, I'm not able. Without Thee, Lord, I can do nothing. From Thee, my fruit must be found. It's when we fall upon the seed of the woman that the victory prevails over the satanic bruising. And what a, what a joy that is. What a comfort that is. Through surrender for the believer lies victory in Christ. Christ gathers the self-condemned into his shepherding arms. To them he opens his gospel victory. He says, as it were, dear sheep, Satan may bruise your heel, but I have bruised his head on your account. On your account. And how so? In three ways. I bruised him in the first place in my atoning death. While Christ's heel, that is the lower part, which is symbolic of his human nature, was being bruised on Calvary, he was indeed crushing the head of Satan. The same heel Satan was bruising was simultaneously crushing Satan fatally. Satan's a defeated foe. From Good Friday on. And secondly, Christ bruises Satan's head in his victorious resurrection. Satan could not keep the victor buried. He did his best. He had guards. He had a stone. He had a seal. But God has said, his body, the body of my son shall not see corruption. Christ arose from the grave by his father's power, the Bible says, other places by his own power, and yet another place in Romans by the Holy Spirit's power. The triune God rose him from the dead. And the stone becomes a pebble. And the guards become weak. And the seal is easily broken in the, heart, in the, in, 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 in the might of this greater Samson. He shows himself alive for 40 days, 
40 nights. He ascends in triumph to his father. He leads captivity captive. He's now at the right hand of the father, beyond the reach of all bruising powers of hell. He's in his state of exaltation. He has the keys of death and hell and grave in his hand. The church is safe in the hands of Christ. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. His resurrection is a pledge of your blessed resurrection. It's a, it's a guarantee of your justification and your eternal victory in Christ. And then third, Satan's defeated not only by his, Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, but also by the final judgment yet to come. On the day of judgment, Satan and his seed will be cast out forever, my friend. Never again, never again shall Satan trouble the seed of the woman. The victor will come upon the clouds. He will seize, that's John's word, seize the old serpent and cast him eternally, eternally, think of that, into the bottomless pit. No more bruisings in heaven. Satan's bruising the bruising of his head fatally shall be complete and final. Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan will have no joy in hell. Satan will not even be able to mock with the unsaved in hell. Christ is victor over hell. He owns the keys of hell as well. The bruising of Satan's head will be complete. The accuser of the brethren will accuse no more. There will be no temptations in heaven. No temptations to be tempted. All heel bruising shall be done away. The militant church shall become the church triumphant. All Egyptians shall be drowned in the Red Sea of everlasting destruction. Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today... You shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Oh, blessed day, when this corruption shall see incorruption, and this mortality shall put on immortality. That day, that day shall usher all the elect, beginners, young men in grace, advanced in grace, into everlasting heavenly Elam, the celestial city, to be with Jesus, where all good is walled in and all evil is walled out, where all conflict shall be done away. The satanic seed shall be buried in the depths of hell. So keep courage, dear people of God. Cling to the promise of grace Cling to the Christ of the promise. His seed shall not perish. Amos 9, 9 says that not one grain of God's wheat shall fall through the sieve to the ground. Not one grain. Not the smallest believer. Not the most tried believer. There'll be no empty chairs in heaven. Everyone, everyone will be gathered in your victor cannot fail. His cause is sure. His second advent is near. He will not forsake the work of his own hands, and he will bring you into glory, and you will enter spiritually into a utopian marriage with him, the altogether lovely, the chief among 10,000, the white and the ruddy, and you'll be sin-free. Sin-free, sin-free in Emmanuel's land as holy, as holy as Christ is holy. And you won't have to look away from him with a sense of your shame or sense of guilt or sense of sin. Revelation 19 says, you shall gaze upon him Face to face, face to face, and never have to look away again. And he will become all in all, 
as you've always wanted him to be. Oh, what a day. What a victory. You know, we had a student, third-year Nigerian student, who came into my office one day with, with a first-year student from Nigeria. And the student had arrived the day before. A third-year student introduced the first-year student to me. <clears throat> and the student <coughs> looked at me like this. And I didn't know what was going on. And the third-year student caught it, and he said, no, no, no. He said, in Nigeria, it's an insult to the teacher to look him in the face. But in America, it's an insult not to look him in the face. So then the poor guy tried to look at me longer, and he he went about like this. (laughs) he, he, He just, he couldn't stay focused on me. Don't you feel that way sometime about Jesus? Samuel Rutherford said, I get blinks and glances of Christ, but then my heart is drawn away again. But not there. Gazing. Gazing means you're fixated. It means you don't see anything else. It means Jesus is in your eye altogether, all the time. It means... Heaven and Jesus become synonyms for you. He's heaven's heaven, as Rutherford said. If there were a thousand heavens piled on top of one another, my Lord Jesus would be the center of them all. I once preached on on heaven in Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And a man came down afterward. He said, I agree with everything you said about heaven. He said, except I'm still troubled by one thing. He said, I won't be married to my wife up there. And I said to him, sir, if your wife is a believer, you'll be standing side by side. And you'll both be fixated on Jesus as though you'll have a better marriage than you ever had before. See, everything good on earth is better in heaven. Heaven is a place of utopian perfection because we'll be fixed on Jesus, the seed of a woman. We'll get the total victory. Total victory. Oh, what what a future awaits the people of God. Are you one of them? Is your heart drawn to Christ? Whom seek ye? Do you seek Jesus? He's available for the greatest of sinners. Cast yourself upon him. Throw yourself upon his promises. Upon his invitations, he would woo you to himself. Receive him, treasure him, love him, surrender all to him. Don't rest until you can say, he's my all and in all. Well, let me close with this (coughs) illustration, which I've uh, said before from this pulpit, but it bears repeating here. There was once a, a northern shepherd boy in Scotland who bedded down his sheep one night in the midst of a ferocious storm. And the storm got so bad during the night that the viaduct that was um, connecting two, two hills uh, crashed in the middle of the night. And the train track actually lay in the valley in the morning. And the shepherd boy ran up the embankment as soon as it was light and got to the track in time as the train was coming. And he waved to the conductor to stop the train. And the conductor waved him away. So the boy threw himself across the track. The conductor slammed on the brakes and ran over the boy. But managed to stop in time before going down into the abyss. Many people were sleeping on the train. They got off. They they ran to the abyss. They looked down. They saw the mangled track laying in the valley. They saw the mangled remains of the shepherd boy. And no one said a word until finally one old man spoke. That boy there, that boy there, he said, he saved my life. If Christ is not your life, Tonight, as you sit here, you need to stop the train of your life. 
before you destroy yourself forever. Don't give yourself any rest until you can point to the God-man on the cross who throws himself right now as I speak across the track of your life. Don't give yourself any rest until you can point to him on the cross and say, that God-man there, that God-man there, he, the seed of the woman, saved my life. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we bow before Thee. We beg of Thee, Lord, to fulfill this first gospel promise. Salvifically, experientially, personally, continuously, eternally, in our lives and in our hearts, to thy own glory, to the well-being of our souls, and to the joy of our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank thee so much for being willing to subject thyself to such heavy bruisings of Satan to set us free. Oh, help us to live for Thee. Help us to say to Thee, if Thou didst die for me, the least thing I can do is live for Thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.